Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. And our subject, sex and Christ. Romans 8, 5 through 8. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. One of the opinions that is most current among many scholars, non-Christian scholars, is that the fall was due to sex. And as a result, the cause of crime is sexual. This opinion is very, very widespread among a tremendous variety of writers and thinkers. It is read into the Bible without any ground whatsoever for this opinion. In essence, this is a pagan idea which has been revived. A popular example of this opinion can be found in a book by former San Quentin warden Clinton Duffy in his book entitled Sex and Crime. And he maintains, and I quote, Sex is the cause of nearly all crime, the dominant force that drives nearly all criminals. After 35 years of correctional experience as warden of San Quentin Prison, a member of the California Adult Authority and executive director of the San Francisco Council on Alcoholism, I am convinced that it is a rare crime that can't be traced to a sexual inadequacy of some sort. Criminals are plagued and puzzled and upset by sexual tension, death, fantasies, anxieties, and hunger. In my opinion, 90% of the men in our nation's prisons are there because they could not come to grips with the problem. We shall have sex as long as we have life, and crime as long as we have civilization. We can't wipe out sex, so we can't wipe out crime. Not until we accept the relationship between the two can we begin to make real progress in our everlasting battle against the forces of evil. We must understand that most crime is the result of sex and has to be treated as a sex problem." Unquote. Now, this opinion is a very obvious absurdity, but it is a very, very popular and an extensive one. There's a good reason for this opinion. And the reason is that if they get popular acceptance of this opinion, which is exactly what they're trying to do through a variety of popular articles, publication of such theses in newspapers and magazines, and there is scarcely a week when I do not encounter this opinion, either openly stated or implied, then what follows? 
for they obviously. If crime is due to sex and to our sexual ideas and concepts and rules and regulations, then the way to eliminate crime is to eliminate or radically alter all present existing sexual standards. You get the implications now of this opinion. Just do away with our Christian body of laws which still govern more or less our sexual laws and standards, and you will then eliminate the cause of crime. This is the thesis. It isn't always stated that openly, although it sometimes is in some more learned periodicals. But this is the reason for this increasingly popular feature. Secure and remove crime. Change the sexual standard. Wipe out physical law. Then, if you have a humanistic standard, a free love standard, or whatever term you want to give it, then you can take steps towards a free and a humane society. This is the thesis. Duffy's book is a popular presentation of it, and yet, ironically, Duffy's book gives quite a bit of evidence against it, where he does not intend to do so. For example, in one chapter, Warden Duffy states that Orientals seldom ever ended up in San Quentin because of their strong family culture, and that it was extremely rare for a Japanese ever to be in prison. He stated further that Scandinavians are rarely in prison. The Irish earlier used to be, and when they do it, it's because of either drinking or fighting. The Germans are rarely in trouble, and then because of acts of aggression. Italians, because of gang activity. French, when they are in prison, not too commonly, it is for sex offenses. Mexicans, for crimes of violence and narcotics, but rarely after the age of 40. And he admitted that the overwhelming proportion of prisoners across the country are Negroes. He tried, of course, to wipe out this fact by stating that it was due to the fact that there is police prejudice against Negroes. This might be true on occasion, but there is equally extensive evidence and greater evidence that there is leniency towards Negroes. In many areas of the country where petty theft is involved or drunkenness or fighting among Negroes, the attitude of the police is to give them a warning and to let them go, not to bother them too much. Thus, Duffy's own experience makes clear that his evidence concerning the relationship of sex and crime is not true. But there does seem to be some evidence of a racial link, although he denies it. 
On the other hand, the racial link is not the answer either. It changes. For example, 50 and 100 years ago, the Irish were very heavily involved because they were recent immigrants. Earlier, the Germans were heavily involved, and then suddenly the German population in prison almost entirely disappeared. And so on. You can trace the waves of immigrants as they came over. The first generation, many of them, did get into trouble. The second generation, the seed, in most cases. But today, with the younger generation, those under 21, all of these groups that previously had no criminal background for sometimes two or three generations are suddenly involved again. Is the answer right? Obviously not. It is the moral and spiritual breakdown. Now in our text, St. Paul stated the case very plainly. He said, those that are after the flesh, that is, that walk after the fallen human nature, do mind the things of that nature. But those that are after the Spirit, that are governed by the Holy Spirit, are mindful of the things of the Spirit. So to be carnally minded is death. That is, it works the havoc of sin which is destructive of the life of the man, spiritually and physically. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The mind of the natural man, the unregenerate man, St. Paul goes on to say, is enmity against God. Because it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be without regeneration. Therefore, those that are in the flesh cannot please God. Quite the contrary. They are enemies of God. They hate God. They are not submissive to God's law. In fact, cannot be so, apart from conversion. And therefore, as Paul makes clear in the first chapter of Romans, such people pursue a course of religious Lawlessness. Now, it is this aspect of man that the humanist refuses to recognize. They are going to cure man's criminality by eliminating some set of laws. The sexual law, for example. Or, with the Marxist, the property law and religion. But if you were to eliminate all these laws that every set of humanists want, if you were to eliminate private property, if you were to eliminate all laws concerning Christian sexual standards, or any other set of laws that any group of humanists wants abolished, you would still have crime. Because the ungodly are by nature lawbreakers. No matter how much you lower the standard, they will still break that standard. Because it is the nature of the unregenerate, because he is at warfare with God, 
to break every law, no matter how minimal. When man becomes his own God, it becomes an article of faith with him to assert his claim to Godhood by violating all law, not of his own choosing. Man then lives to break the law. As a result, you do not decrease crime by eliminating the laws against crime. You only increase it. Make the situation as easy as you want in the hopes that, well, we've eliminated a lot of problems that people resent, laws that they don't like. Now they're going to be much more law-abiding. Quite the contrary. It intensifies the lawlessness in them. As a result, the more a revolutionary generation breaks the law, the more violent it becomes. Because violations of a progressively lax standard require progressively more flagrant action. But, in the Roman Empire, when the laws against adultery and the laws against homosexuality were eliminated, what happened? Did the Romans thereafter become more law-abiding in their sexuality? On the contrary. Now it meant that there were other things, other kinds of perversions, other kinds of depravity they had to explore and develop so they could break the law. Because the whole idea was to break the law. There was a film about eight or ten years ago, an Italian film entitled The Sweet Light, Adolce Vita. And the key line in that, which dealt with, of course, more degenerate than perverse, was the statement of two homosexuals. If the whole world were converted to our position, what could we then do? What would we be sinning against? Because, of course, their basic desire was to violate a standard, to sin against something. And if the whole world were of their kind, where would the sin be left? It would be their defeat. Nietzsche said in his last book, that the disbelief in God and immortality would create a world of violent men. And he was so right. And at that point, he mocked the humanist who said that unbelieving man will treasure this right because it is his only one. And therefore, he will be all the more anxious to live in peace. But God and immortality give meaning to life, and without this meaning, life becomes cheaper, and there is more violence and more murder. And Nietzsche was right. Abolish these beliefs, and there will be more warfare, more murder, more violence than man has ever imagined. And he looked forward to it.
The essence of the unregenerate is hatred of God, as St. Paul said. A desire to break the law of God. His desire is to be unbound, unfettered by law and responsibility, and also to shatter everything that is law abiding. As a result, he is a radically perverse man. Someone once said, this was in the days of Louis XIII and Louis XIV, to the Count de Grameau, and he did not deny it, and I quote, Is it not a fact that as soon as a woman pleases you, your first care is to find out whether she has any other lover, and your second how to plague her? For the gaining of her affection is the last thing in your thoughts. You seldom engage in intrigues but to disturb the happiness of others. A mistress who has no lovers would have no charm for you, unquote. And he agreed that was right. His whole idea was to conquer somebody and then to throw them over immediately. And the whole purpose of the gentleman of the day was described, and I quote, a desire to seduce and desert for malicious force, unquote. And the crown of victory for the seducer was to do his work, and I'm quoting, without the slightest emotional involvement, so that when the woman conquered and submissive begs at last, at least tell me that you love me, he can affect a disdainful smile and refuse, unquote. As a result, as one observer commented, if love is judged by most of its effects, it resembles hate more than friendship. And this was true of what was called love in the age of reason. Such love was really hatred, a desire to break, to destroy. And it began, first of all, with the hatred of God. The natural man is at enmity against God. And therefore, against the principle of law everywhere. And so his desire is perpetually to destroy. Man as a god wants to be self-sufficient. As a result, to be dependent on someone, and love is a dependency, is something that must be denied. We saw a few months ago that the age of reason, the Enlightenment, reduced woman legally to a slave. And it could only wax poetic about a helpless woman. And the Romantic poets, for example, who followed after the wake of the Enlightenment, could only see a totally helpless woman as lovable. One that they could take and use and throw aside, as Shelley, for example, delighted in doing. And Keats, at one point in his poetry, burbled about one love of his life. God, she is like a milk-white lamb that bleats for man's protection. And of course, the idea is you can cut a lamb's throat as well. 
Now every hostility has as its other face a new sympathy. If you begin to hate something you previously liked, then you have a new liking for something else. If you hate God, you are then going to love everything that is anti-God. You will hate his law and therefore you will love crime. And as a result, one of the consequences of the age of reason was in the 19th and 20th century what has been called the age of pity. Pity for the criminal. Pity for the criminal means no pity for the victim. It means, therefore, hostility against the innocent and the law-abiding. It means to revolt against God's authority and all authority. And when the Renaissance came along, it unleashed in Western civilization a revolt against authority and against law, which we still have with us. For a time, the Reformation set it back. But today, the same forces of paganism that the Renaissance saw revived in Europe are again with us. Let me quote from one writer who glorifies the Renaissance his statement of the standards of the Renaissance. I quote, The liberty sought by the us. The notion of beauty is in itself disturbing. The arts have always been the shock troops of true revolution. The liberty sought out by science, which is already more dangerous for established power as well as for those who idolize the past. The liberty sought out in language and mores were all part of one capital dynamic factor, individualism. By this he means individualism without God. Through individualism, liberty seeks to attain the absolute, that which leads it beyond the concepts of good and evil to authentic anarchy. The genius of the Renaissance often masks the profound and functional anarchy, which was not destructive, being dominated and held in check by pride. Pride alone permitted this luxurious anarchy which found its morality in art. The perfect example of Renaissance man is the condottiere. Such a condottiere as Sigismondo Malatesta is the Renaissance summed up in one man. His individualism is equal to that of Bartolomeo Colioni or Galeazzo Sforza. Uh, the anarchy of these warlords is based on the rejection of every law, human, or divine. Another famous condottier, Werner von Uslingen, wore and weighed on his breastplate these words, enemy of God, compassion, and mercy. Men of his caliber, capable of such fierce hate, strongly marked the world arising from the ashes of the Middle Ages. The violence of the Middle Ages was never free from obsession and cruelty, and above all, the need to find a justification in invoking religious precepts. The pretext. 
The violence of the Renaissance did not for an instant seek to justify itself. The sentiment of guilt had disappeared, absorbed by that desperate will to power which will be given a name four centuries later. Nevertheless, these condottieri introduced in their society an exterior element which ravaged the continent, the soldier of horses, lords of pillage and race. Their example, as well as their crime's impunity, was always been a useful pretext to unleash the most infamous instincts under the cover of heroes' natural weaknesses, strongly influenced their contemporaries. And so he says that this was the glory of the Renaissance. It unleashed this lawlessness, and we are now beginning to realize the happy fruits of it. We're destroying God's law order. And so we will be free to create our own society. All this points up the total error of the modern perspective, which seeks to base crime on sex, others on property, others on a variety of other causes. It underscores the religious aspect of all criminality. To be carnally minded is death. The carnal mind, the ungodly mind, is enmity against God. For it is not subject or submissive to God's law, and indeed cannot be so. It is this enmity against God which is at the root of all criminality. It is important for us to realize this fact because we are getting, through secrets and a variety of other things, the same thesis that Clinton Duffy advocated. Change sexual behavior, release it from biblical law, and you are free man from those forces in his being which have led to criminality. And to this we must say, we will only increase criminality and violence because you will enthrone anti-Christian man in all his depravity. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee for thy word and for thy government. We know, our Father, that as we are surrounded by a world of men at war with thee, that in this warfare, our Father, thy victory is certain. Make us strong, therefore, Father, and the defense of the faith, and the proclamation of thy word, and in the extension of thy law order, knowing thy Father the certainty of thy victory, and the certainty of thy judgment upon the workers of iniquity. Strengthen us by thy word and by thy spirit, that we may ever serve thee in faith, and assurance. In Jesus' name, Amen. 
Are there any questions now? First of all, with respect to our lesson. Yes. Yes. First of all, with respect to divorce, the concept of guilt is going to be abolished. This is the gist of the new law. Now, the idea is, why should a court affix blame? Why should it affix guilt in a marital situation? Well, first, first of all, the Bible requires it. Secondly, what is to be done with the children and the disposition of the property if no guilt is affixed? In other words, what if the mother is a totally unfit mother? If no guilt is affixed, then the children are hers automatically. So you see, by refusing to affix guilt, they are going to destroy any possibility of any equitable settlement of any family situation. Second, this is a toe in the door. If there is no guilt in a marital situation, then what happens to the guilt, the concept of guilt elsewhere in life? Well, the concept of guilt is a Christian concept. What is the concept which they are seeking to replace guilt with? It is mental sickness. Already, as a part of any divorce proceedings, both parties must consult a counselor whose basic approach is psychological, mental health. Thus, the mental health concept will be enthroned in marriage. The next step will be to introduce the mental health concept in place of the guilt concept with respect to every other crime. So you see, this means the destruction of law as we have known it. Yes. Well, unfortunately, they do. You refer to this fact of gold theft. Of course, this has been a chronic fact in gold mines from the beginning of time, and the Soviet Union is executing those who steal gold from the mines, but they're still stealing it. Now, of course, according to these people, it's a sexual crime, and they need to have their uh, behavior changed sexually. I don't know how they could change it much for the worse with some miners I've known when I was in Nevada. But at any rate, that's the answer. So what are you going to do to these people? Hand them over to a psychiatrist for a period of uh, psychotherapy. Now, th this, of course, means that the whole thing breaks down very quickly. A good question, and one they will not answer, except by saying every psychoanalyst goes through psychoanalysis before he is permitted to practice. But of course, he goes through it with another one, his teacher. Yes. 
That what? Oh, yes. He was thoroughly. But he was an honest atheist, and, of course, in his perversity, he welcomed the total violence. You'll find this statement of what's going to happen in his last book, Ecce Homo. But he very definitely declares and welcomes the coming total anarchy, lawlessness, violence, continual warfare that he felt his kind of philosophy would produce. And, of course, we're getting exactly what Nietzsche said, that the humanists don't seem to like it as much as Nietzsche did. Yes? Yes, this is a similar kind of thing. It is a humanistic belief that the cause of crime is somewhere other than in man's relationship to God. It's going to be in his uh, acceptance, basically, of a God-given law order. This is what they're saying in one form or another. Whether that God-given law order is with reference to sex or to property or whatever, it is God's law order that is the cause of mental sickness. It's just a question of what area of law they're going to emphasize. So the opinion you cited is a part of this picture, very definitely. thinking or, uh, oh yes, it will, it will only create continuing and perpetual anarchy. However, what they do believe is this, and Henry Miller has stated it most plainly, and I refer to this, I believe in this independent republic. He believes that if we have a couple of centuries of total anarchy, total lawlessness, during which time civilization will disappear, the ability to read and write will disappear, all kinds of perversions will so thoroughly prevail that men and women will scarcely know which sex they are, then after two centuries of that kind of total destruction, the time of the assassins, as it were, then will come a truly free and innocent society. Man will then be able to live like the animals, peacefully, without a bad conscience. Yes.
Well, of course, their attitude would be the French Revolution was a good beginning, but we have to have something total, worldwide, and then this paradise will flower automatically.
been nothing in the moon landing that has served their evolutionary purposes, and you are true. They were earlier fearful that the first man to land on the moon would sink into 30 feet of cosmic dust that had accumulated over the millions of years on the face of the moon. However, uh, none of this is going to weigh uh, at all with them because they are bent on seeing every evidence as evidence of their position in spite of anything. Yes. Right. Of course, they're always going to see everything in their favor. Our time is just about up. I have one announcement to make. On Saturday, August the 16th, at the Dempsey Tegler Conference Room, 413 North Brand in Glendale, we will have our Chalcedon Seminar for college students and college-age students, and the subject will be the spirit of the modern age. Uh, what is the motive power of the modern age? Why are there drop-offs and drop-ins? What is the establishment? Are we at the end of an age? Why uh, is the is Berkeley the inevitable result of public school education? These are the kinds of questions that Jerry North and myself will be dealing with. The conference will begin at 9.45 a.m. and continue to 4.30 p.m. And the registration fee is $5, and lunch will be provided. So if you know of any college-age uh, young people, that you would like to see there, this is open to any and all, whether Christian or not, uh, please come and take some of the uh, registration forms and pass it on to them. Thank you.